I'd like to, I'm going to give you a 30 second heads up so everybody can kind of make their way to their seats. I'm going to try to begin close to on time this morning. My name is Kevin Hester and I serve as Secretary for the Commission on Theological Integrity. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our 2020 Theological Symposium. Uh, we began last evening uh, with a couple of really, really strong presentations. I was excited about those and I'm excited for what the Lord has in store for us today. Um, I've asked um, Brother Bob Thompson, uh, President of Randall University, to uh, lead us in prayer this morning. Father, we're indeed thankful for the opportunity to be here today, uh, to be able to hear these papers, and to be able to think of things that concern uh, theology. God, we want to always recognize the importance of knowing you and knowing truth about you, and I trust that what we have learned today, we can use in our own personal life as well as our ministry. God, use us that we might exalt uh, your name. Use us that we might extend your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to welcome those of you who've been able to join us this morning. Let me remind you there is a sign-in sheet. We'd like to keep a record of your attendance, so if you haven't yet had an opportunity to do that, please uh, sign in and give us some of your contact information before the end of the day today. Uh, I'd like to also point your attention to uh, fwbtheology.com, which is the website for um, the Commission for Theological Integrity. We also have a Facebook page with which we try to communicate to some of, uh, some of you out there, providing uh, announcements, occasional blogs, and other issues. So uh, if you've got any questions about that, please speak to one of the commission members, and we'll be happy to help you uh, as much as we can. Our first paper this morning is from Mr. Matthew Stephen Bracey. Mr. Bracey uh, serves as the Vice Provost for Academic Affairs at Welch College. Uh, he has educational backgrounds both in law and theology from Beeson Divinity School, Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, and is currently in his PhD program in Ethics and Public Policy. He writes and teaches in the area of culture and philosophy, and he's going to be presenting to us today uh, a wonderful paper entitled um, Imagination, God, Man, and Ethics. So that's right up, uh, up the alley. We're excited for that. Uh, it's a privilege also to have his lovely wife, Dr. Sarah Bracey, with us. Uh, they live in Cross Plains, Tennessee, and you can ask him about his gardening and his, uh, his diligent work to turn that, uh, that uh, what is it, eight acres? Ish, five and a half, it's getting there, uh, into a home, so an idyllic setting, certainly. So uh, with that, we welcome you, Mr. Bracey. Thank you, Dr. Hester. Good morning to those in this room. Good morning to those in the digital world. Imagination, God, man, and ethics. Many Christians have not deeply considered the role of imagination in their doctrine of man. Numerous reasons emerge for this state of affairs. One reason is that we associate imagination with the arts. Authors of books, painters of pictures, they have imagination, we may say. But I'm no artist. I'm more of a left-brain person. 
Admittedly, God has not gifted many with the capacity to paint a good picture. Our pen, an excellent poem, provide me with paint, a brush, and a canvas, and I will demonstrate that claim. Or perhaps we say, it's not only that I'm not an artist, I'm just not interested in the arts. I don't like reading, especially don't like fiction or poetry. I don't like museums. I don't even like watching movies. Undoubtedly, God has not formed us all such that we... uh, Undoubtedly, God has formed us all such that we have different strengths and gifts and interests and hobbies. However, uh, as we will see, imagination, creativity even, is not limited to the arts. It is part and parcel of our being human. Another reason we may not have examined the imagination is that we associate it with license and hence wickedness. Consider one of the most well-known passages in the scriptures concerning the subject of imagination. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This verse does not paint a flattering picture for the imagination. To be sure... The doctrine of total depravity teaches that the curse of sin has infected everything in this world, imagination included. As an extension of this basic point, we may even think about the general reputation that authors, screenwriters, and other artists have within our broader culture. Namely, that they are liberal and permissive in their morality, and that they even exhibit hostility toward traditional Christian morality. These realities do not bode well for the topic of imagination. So we might associate it with the arts, in which some are not gifted or interested, or we might associate it with sinful license, which offends our sensibilities. And the end result is that we do not give the imagination its due. However, we will see that human imagination does not result from the fall of man. Yes, men and women use it to ill effect, like they do with reason and emotion and will, But just as those components of man's nature predate his sin, so also does the imagination. In this presentation, we will analyze the topic of imagination. Uh, This next point is not in your digest, but my basic argument is that we should give it more attention than we do, because it is an ever-present component of who we are, and how we cultivate it in relation to the triune God is extremely important. Throughout this presentation, back to the digest, I will draw upon the scriptures, as well as from the writings of Christian ethicists and theologians from across the confessional spectrum. I will first make some observations about the role of imagination within the nature of man and society. Then I will give an overview of a biblical theology of imagination. Finally, I will examine the role of imagination in ethics. So, the nature of man the nature of society, and the imagination. And we start with the human imagination. Fundamentally, people imagine because they are human beings. Thus, Reinhold Niebuhr referred to the, quote, human imagination throughout his writings. Numerous voices have demonstrated that imagination exists as an aspect of man's mind or else is closely identified with it. Different people remark differently. You can see that in the notes. Nonetheless, imagination is distinct from cold logic or reason. Edmund Burke, writing in a philosophical inquiry, explained that the mind of man possesses a sort of creative power of its own. This power is called imagination. Also, he places the 
pleasures of imagination, the pleasure of imagination, alongside yet distinct from the reasoning faculty. As we will see, and as Burke believed, creative power is much broader than the arts. Similarly, Kevin Van Hooser associates imagination with the mind's power of comprehension and understanding. He writes, imagination is the ability to grasp how things fit together, the capacity for beholding holes. Within a Forlensian anthropology of man, as a total personality of thinking, feeling, and acting, imagining is a form of thinking. Imagination thus relates to man's perception of the world. Although the imagination exists, I'm going to say, as an aspect of man's mind, it also connects to his emotional and volitional states. Thus, Niebuhr uh, used the triad emotion, imagination, and will, referencing the various components of man's personality. Similarly, Matthew Rastukia argues that imagination connects our rational power to the emotional and volitional centers of our souls. Yet just as imagination connects the mind to other components of the body, so also it interconnects individuals within a society such that a social imagination exists. The social imagination. The social imagination refers generally to the stories, symbols, images, illusions, patterns of speech, habits, morals, and other characteristics that describe the way a given society sees and interprets the world. It is the imagination of the group, such as the imagination of the early church or the imagination of monasticism. In short, a social imagination of some kind or another, whether moral or immoral, emerges from all groups and subgroups of people precisely because they comprise people with human imagination. Again, Van Hooser comments on the relationship between a society's imagination and its ethic, writing, there is an important though often overlooked tie between a culture's imagination and its ethics. The foundational stories of a given culture its stock of narratives and meta-narratives create a sense of the stage on which human freedom lives and moves. Culture cultivates an ethos via the work of imagination, mythos. If then the imagination describes a component of the human person and consequently characterizes a given society, then it also implicates discussions of ethics. However, before considering the intersection of ethics and imagination, we will examine a biblical theology of imagination. Biblical theology of imagination begins with the divine imagination and the created imagination. Man imagines because God imagines, and man is made in God's image. In the beginning, God created, writes Rastukia. But before the beginning, he imagined. To imagine means to conceptualize or to form an image of something. Thus, from eternity past, the omniscient God could look across the annals of history when as not yet one of them had passed. He could picture man's actions, man's sin, and formulate plans of redemption for, for rescue from its ravages. When God created the heavens and the earth, the subject of his imagination found expression. He created the light and the night, the water and the air, the sky and the earth, and the plants and the animals. God also created man. 
But unlike the rest of his creation, he fashioned man in his own image, after his own likeness. Hence, because God imagines, man imagines too. Paul Ramsey specifically pointed to human imagination as resulting from God's image in man in his book, Basic Christian Ethics. After which he evaluated that, quote, the capacity of human nature most commanding respect is man's faculty for imagination. Leroy Fourlines also appears to have associated the creative function of imagination with God's image in man and with its rational component. He has that association. Consider this quotation. Human beings have this potential, this potential he's referring back to be the humans God intended for them to be, because they are created by God in his image. Human beings are in the rational likeness of God. The creative potential of human minds, when seen both individually and collectively, staggers the imagination. So we at least see some association with these concepts from Mr. Fourlines. To be human is to imagine. Upon his creating man, God instructed him, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The creation mandate has resulted in the establishment of cultures and societies and bodies politic because obedience to God's procreative, social, and regal commands requires a creative imagination. For what is planning and inventing and making and fashioning but an exercise of the imagination? John Frame explains it by defining imagination as our ability to think of things that are not. Man cannot obey God's command except that he imagine. However, man does not exercise his imagination as he ought, owing to the curse of sin and the reality of total depravity. And so we have the defective imagination and the prophetic imagination. And so we have that verse that I referenced earlier. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man plans in advance and makes and fashions in a manner unintended by his maker. Consequently, John Wesley, uh, in his sermons, and his commentaries, refers again and again to man's vain imagination. Reinhold Niebuhr refers to his defective Imagination. James Gustafin refers to his heaviness of imagination. Four lines also recognize the role that imagination plays in man's sin. The same capacity that can imagine evil can commit evil. Imagination precedes action. Regrettably, man's imagination ref- reflects his fallen nature. One central example of a wrongful use of imagination is the sin of idolatry. So detrimental is the imagination that Frame observes, imagination has gained a bad reputation in some Christian circles, especially Reformed circles, because of the focus of negative uses of the term in Scripture. However, these biblical references do not rule out positive uses of the imagination. God created man with imagination, but man does not imagine according to God's holy purpose. Yet also, man would not recognize the sinful quality of his manner of life except for the imagination's right appropriation of truth. For this reason, Niebuhr explained, the sense of sin is peculiarly uh, the product of religious imagination. The religious imagination recognizes the phenomenon of sin. 
So we have the notion of the prophetic imagination. Several decades later, Russell Kirk illustrated Niebuhr's point by appealing to the Hebrew prophets as men endowed with moral imagination, convinced that Jehovah had commanded them to speak in his name, to tell the people of divine wrath and divine mercy. So while the imagination has been impacted by sin, it can also prophetically point to the problem of sin when it responds rightly to God's grace. Many have designated this function of imagination as the prophetic imagination. Thankfully, God has not left man in his miserable estate. And so we have the evangelical imagination. The progressive salvation of men's souls refers to the ongoing renewal of the total personality Imagination included, which occurs in Christ by the Holy Spirit. If the prophetic imagination points to sin, the evangelical imagination points to the incarnated Christ, to the salvation he provides, and to the example he offers, which presents a model, a picture, for believers to follow. The evangelical imagination, writes Van Hooser, provides people with, quote, the ability to see what God is doing for the world in Christ uh, and Jesus Christ. He roots this claim in a Logos Christology, explaining that it is the Logos made flesh that compels us to reimagine God's glory in terms of the face of Christ. The biblical imagination depicts the entry of the eternal into human time and thus generates, generates an evangelical ethos, God with us. End quote. In himself, man can imagine only how to live in sin. There is no good thing in the flesh of men, says Paul. Yet God can imagine how a man might live in righteousness, and he makes that vision a reality in Christ. Significantly, the Holy Spirit plays a key role in the Christian's appropriation of an evangelical imagination, and consequently, growth in godliness. Jesus describes the Spirit as convicting the world of sin, and righteousness. Hence, John McIntyre, writing in Faith, Theology, and the Imagination, suggests that the Holy Spirit is God's imagination, imagination let loose in the world. Man is dead in his trespasses and sin. Nothing good lives within him except that God in Christ, by his Spirit, sanctify him and make him holy so that he can live according to the fruit of Christ and of his Spirit. In short, we're dead in our sin. God can imagine how we might not be dead in our sin, and so he... He invites us not to be dead in our sin. William Spohn unites these two themes of Christ and spirit, explaining Christians become conformed to the mind of Christ by using their imaginations under the grace of the spirit. The imagination grasps the fundamental pattern of Jesus' life as the pattern for their lives to follow. Christians learn about Jesus' life in words by means of the written word the Hebrew Christian scriptures. Thus, a distinctly biblical imagination informs an evangelical imagination. The biblical imagination. Reading God's word requires imagination. For example, over and again, the scriptures use images to describe God. Bridegroom, father, king, lord, priest, prophet, rock, shepherd, many others. As another example, Paul Ricoeur uh, focuses especially on the use of imagination in reading the narrative stories of Scripture. Likewise, biblical interpretation and application requires imagination. 
Stanley Hauerwas describes it as an act of imagination, an affair of the imagination. Man cannot mentally project about the application of a given passage or principle in his life or in the life of the church without first imagining it. For example, when the preacher thinks about the application of political theology or political ethics, he thinks about how he could convey it to his congregation. He considers how he might pray for political leaders and political situation. He weighs the pros and cons of voting for one candidate over another. Each of these actions requires forward thinking. They call for imagination, in other words. Consequently, obedience to God's word is impossible without an active and sanctified use of imagination. Imagination combines with reason to remember and to plan so that it is both retrospective and prospective. Frame comments upon the relationship of the imagination and the past, the present, and the future. All of our thought and activity is a response to the past, but the past is no more. We remember it to some extent, but our overall conception of it is imaginative. Similarly, our thought and activity points toward the future, seeking to influence it, but the future, like the past, does not exist. Our knowledge of the future, such as it is, requires imagination. <clears throat> and, what is the, and what of the present? If the present is, as some have believed, a knife edge between the past and future, a moment to which we cannot meaningfully respond until it is past, then the present is non-being as well, <clears throat> to some extent, a construction of the imagination. End quote. Frame does not mean to press this point as a philosophical position, he says, but rather to illustrate the ever-present functioning of imagination, whether it is recognized as such or not. Thus, imagination makes it possible for man to honor his forebears, retrospective, and to exercise neighbor love. Neighbor love necessitates imagination, because in the words of Gene Edward Veith Jr., you must imagine your neighbor as someone like yourself. <clears throat> also, consider rejoicing, weeping, burden-bearing, suffering with one another entails imagination, as does placing faith in an unseen Jesus, as does running the race of faith amid an unseen cloud of witnesses, as does hoping in an unseen future. The language of one another <clears throat> indicates that the journey of faith is not a solo venture, but a, rather a group trek. For the biblical imagination is cultivated within an ecclesial imagination, which is but a form of the social imagination. And so we turn to the ecclesial imagination. The Christian lives the life of sanctification within the structure and nurture of the corporate body of the church. Hauerwas touches on this point, considering how the church shapes the imagination of its members. He begins by emphasizing the importance of moral wisdom in the life of the Christian, who should, quote, seek a greater understanding of his sustaining story and the moral skills it provides for those people called Christian. The individual believer comes to understand who he is only in context of the community of believers. Hauerwas then links the believer's moral corporate identity to the topic of imagination, saying, Theology, therefore, is the attempt to keep us faithful to the character, and the story, and skills of our community, lest we forget who we are and why we are. It changes the imagination by helping us to notice those images that provide connections that will truthfully form our existence. 
In another work, Hauerwas speaks to the importance of the training of imagination, which occurs in the church. In short, the triune God does not sanctify his people, including the formation of their imaginations, apart from his church and the habits it fosters in Christians' lives through its teachings and its, quote, liturgies. Like Harawas, Stephen Pope weaves these disparate threads of morality, community, and imagination. Morality depends on community. Quote, a proper social understanding of human nature underscores the dependence of virtue generally on community. People are formed and trained in virtue by the stories and exemplars handed down through tradition. End quote. Thus, Pope speaks to the importance of stories, including those that fill the scriptures, as well as the models that believers can emulate. Specifically, he explains, life in community shapes the affections, imagination, and practical rationality through which moral standards are interpreted. This returns us to the importance of scripture, tradition, and the church, all of which play critically important roles in shaping identity and one's sense of the full range of what is meant by human flourishing. Again, the ecclesial community shapes Christians in a profound manner through its religious instruction and rituals. John Henry Newman, a Roman Catholic like Pope, had previously reflected on the role the sacraments play in forming believers' imaginations. He wrote, referring to the Mass, It does not spread by reason, but by the imagination. The imagination presents a possible, plausible view of things which haunts and at length overcomes the mind. By speaking about possibility, Newman made an important observation. <clears throat> Imagination is that aspect of man's nature that dreams. If reason speaks to probability, imagination speaks to possibility. It imagines. But imagination is not simply escapism. It is aspiration. It is hope. In mere Christianity, in a chapter appropriately entitled Hope, C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Imagination conjoined with reason forms high goals and then establishes benchmarks to reach those goals. Philip Kennison, a Protestant, has also examined the relationship of morals, community, and imagination, specifically invoking the social imagination that the church fosters among its members. He writes, the Ecclesia gathers to have its potentially idolatrous imagination renewed by the narratives of Scripture and the practices of the Christian tradition. In place of an idolatrous imagination, the teachings and worship of the church promote a transformed imagination. By the grace and power of God, such worship has often transformed the lives of those who have prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done, nurturing within them an alternative social imagination and thereby enabling them to bear embodied witness to the desires and purposes of God. As Kinnison remarks, renewal, transformation, and restoration always occur according to the grace, power, and purposes of God. James K. Smith has also emphasized the relationship between corporate, ritual, and social imagination in his cultural liturgy, liturgies series. So he has these books, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, Awaiting the Kingdom. He writes, for example, liturgy is the enactment of the story in, the way that sinks, in a way that sinks into our imagination. 
Thus, Smith demonstrates the connection between a divine story, corporate worship, and the ecclesial imagination. The Free Will Baptist, rather than using the language of liturgy or ritual or sacrament, might use the language of ordinance. But the point is the same. The practices of a communal body shape the identity, including the imagination of its members. For example, participating in or observing the ordinance of baptism provides a visual picture for the imagination to consider the burial and resurrection of Christ and of the believer. And it invites him or her to imagine how uh, he or she might serve God more faithfully. Related points arise from the other two sacraments, the Lord's Supper, washing of the saints' feet, each of which also shape believers' imaginations. More generally, an ordinance might refer to anything that Holy Scripture ordains that Christians do. Thus, a frill Baptist might also consider how the act of anointing the head with oil, or the corporate reading of God's word, or corporate prayer, or congregational singing, or tithing, also cultivates the imagination in specific and profound ways. The life of sanctification necessarily involves the imagination, which is formed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The triune God calls upon Christians to meditate upon God's word and to be molded by it. He calls upon them to attach themselves to a local body of believers and to attend to its liturgies, which God also uses to shape the imaginations of believers. With these foundations in place, we turn to the role of imagination and ethics. Ethics in the imagination, the ethical imagination. Ethical decision-making requires the mind, and therefore the imagination. Additionally, the Christian's virtuous development of imagination will give impetus toward righteous behaviors and decisions. C.J. Barker wrote that the imagination is always a more powerful motive force where moral action is required than mere reasoning. By so saying, Barker was not discounting the importance of reason. He was emphasizing an overlooked and underappreciated component of man's nature. Reason and imagination work together to consider, to picture a given course of action in light of the principles of God's word in order to analyze whether it is right and good, or wrong and bad. Approximately 15 years ago, Gustafin wrote about the growing interest in the subject of imagination in ethical theory and in moral life. He says, a more complete human experience for ethics will consider imagination in addition to cognition and logic. He pointed specifically to two works, Daniel McGuire's The Moral Choice and Philip Keene's Christian Ethics and Imagination. McGuire, for his part, focuses on the uh, creative imagination, which speaks simply to man's uh, capacity to formulate plans. Creative imagination is the supreme faculty of moral man, he says. Through it, he breaks out of the bondage of the current state of things. Through it, he perceives the possible is latent in the actual, but which would be unseen by any less exalted consciousness. I really like this. Like God's spirit in the book of Genesis... Creative imagination can find the possibilities of order in the formless void and begin to route the chaos, uh, begin the route of chaos. 
Having rooted this concept in the nature of man and the creation account of Genesis 1, McGuire then links the imagination to ethics, saying, Ethics and the process of moral judgment is not just a matter of sitting in a state and passing judgment on the passing goods and bads. Moral thinking, at its best, perceives goods that have not as yet, uh, that have not as yet existed and brings them into, ex- uh, into being in the creative act. Imagination is implicit if not explicit, in ethics. Keene, the other person that Gustafen mentioned, also addresses the subject of moral imagination, uh, excuse me, the subject of imagination. Through the course of his book, he gives a defense of the topic in his first chapter entitled, Why Ethics and Imagination? He offers both uh, historical, chapter 2, and contemporary, chapter 3, insights on the matter, in chapters 4 through at 5, he reviews the meaning and purpose of moral imagination specifically, as well as some examples of moral imagination, which we'll look to in just a moment. He concludes his book with a chapter about imagination and education for moral living. Yet, prior to McGuire and Keene, and even prior to Barker, who I mentioned earlier, Niebuhr himself had written about the pure ethical imagination in his book Moral Man and immoral society. Hauerwas, for his part, also speaks to the importance of imagination throughout his publications. Uh, The importance of imagination for ethics throughout his publications. Moral notions, he explains, derive their force from paradigmatic display and imagination disciplined by analogies. Likewise, he also discusses the importance of imagination for moral experience. More recently, Kyle Fedler has written about effective exploration of that, that effective exploration of Christian ethics requires a combination of discipline and imagination. However, however, for all the attention that ethicists give to the topic of imagination, or at least more increasingly so, uh, the key for Christians is that they, by the power of God's grace and infidelity to God's word, form a moral imagination. And so, the moral imagination explained. Myriad Christian ethicists through the years have pointed to the importance of a moral imagination. Examples include Reinhold Niebuhr, Philip Keane, Thomas McFall, Kevin Van Hooser, Kyle Fedler, and Ken Magnuson. And yet, not one of these authors has traced the concept of the moral imagination to its fountainhead the 18th century Irish parliamentarian Edmund Burke, with whom the modern interest in the topic began. William Byrne expounds upon this point. He he writes, Although the term moral imagination originated with Edmund Burke, much Burke scholarship fails to mention it. Undoubtedly, that observation extends beyond Burke scholarship. Since that time, the term has appeared more and more frequently, but the connection to Burke is frequently missing including within ethics studies. In his work, Reflections on the Revolution in France from 1790, Burke lamented the loss of traditional chivalric values, such as accountability, honor, humility, principle, transcendence, understanding, which result, uh, resulting from the subversion, um, the loss of those values resulted from the subversion of the Jacobin revolutionaries, which would culminate in the French Revolution. In perhaps his most familiar quotation, Burke observed, 
The age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, calculators has succeeded. The glory of Europe is extinguished forever. But now, all is to be changed. All the pleasing illusions which made power gentle, which made obedience liberal, which harmonized the different shades of life, and which by a bland assimilation incorporated into politics the sentiments which beautify and soften private society, all of that is to be dissolved by this new conquering empire of light and reason. All the decent drapery of life is to be rudely torn off. All the superadded ideas furnished from the wardrobe of the moral imagination, which the heart owns and the understanding ratifies as necessary to cover the defects of our naked, shivering nature and to raise it to dignity in our own estimation. All of these are to be exploded as ridiculous, absurd and antiquated fashion. Myriad themes of importance manifest from Burke's reflections. The concept of moral imagination is perhaps the most important. Several observations emerge from this passage. I want to analyze it for just a moment. Without the moral imagination, without the moral imagination, man's naked, uh, man's naked, man's nature is naked and shivering. That's what he says in his quotation. Man's nature is naked and shivering. Burke's sartorial imagery, drapery, torn off, wardrobe, should bring something to mind. It brings to mind Genesis 3, in which Adam and Eve sin, and they realize their nakedness. Significantly, Burke associated this state of shame with the conquering empire of light and reason, which referring ironically to, the, to enlightened man sophisters, economists, calculators, who in their presumption destroy the faith and disregard forebears. Burke would use the same imagery in, in, another passage, in other passages, such as when he referred critically to naked reason. It's, it's, anal it's analogous to naked Adam and Eve, who in their, in their shame have sinned. But what does God do? He covers their nakedness. Although he did not use the language of the noetic effects of the fall, Burke seems to have recognized its reality. The man of enlightenment judges the age of chivalry and morality as ridiculous, absurd, and antiquated. However, enlightened man's analysis is mistaken because his reason is defective. The solution to man's shame is the covering of his naked epistemic state. As God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve by making garments of skin, so God covers the nakedness of his mind by giving him a moral imagination. Which comes from, among other things, the tradition of the communities in which we've lived. So that's the moral imagination explained. The moral imagination developed. Growth in the moral imagination results from nurturing it according to God's power, by God's word, among God's people. Let me just say before going forward that there are, we could, we could spend an entire presentation on how to develop our moral imagination. So these are just some suggestions. They're not the only suggestions, but these are some. What results from this cultivation is, among other things, the formation of character and epistemic virtue. Thus, Hirawas speaks 
to the immense importance imagination has for the formation of our character, saying that the significance of character for the Christian points to the fact that the gospel is for the Christian criterion of imagination. Michael Lawler and Todd Salzman discuss the relationship of epistemic virtue or faculty virtue and imagination. Van Hooser talks specifically about that virtue of wisdom being paramount amid complex situations. He says, the imagination is the power of synoptic vision, the ability to understand complex wholes. As such is related to wisdom, the discernment of how things fit together and hence of what one should do in a given situation. Yet the question remains as to what the application of godly character and Christian virtue actually looks like in practice. The developing moral imagination can go only so far with principles. Yes, principles are important, but we need more. It needs more than abstraction. One of the greatest obstacles to living the Christian life in contemporary society is an impoverished imagination, writes Kennison. Most of us will find it difficult to live a life we cannot imagine. Thus, the imagination needs concrete Tangible examples. It needs examples in order to put flesh and blood on those principles to see how they work out in the hustle and bustle of real life. This goal does not mean that subsequent circumstances will look precisely like prior ones. They won't. However, definite examples take one's analysis further than that which mere theory can offer. In ethics, the imagination plays an important role in forming ethically significant patterns and analogies, says Frame. Further, imagination enables us to conceive of alternative courses of action as we ponder what to do in the future. And as we consider the validity of ethical principles, imagination helps us to form examples and counterexamples, case studies that may validate or invalidate the principles under consideration. So, undoubtedly, principles play a foundational role in ethical deliberation, but principles need examples. Need examples. Thus, alongside looking to God's word, And living amid God's people to shape the moral imagination, the Christian can also look to the examples of the Hebrew Christian past. Foremost is the God-man, Jesus Christ. To remember Christ, the significance of his work, is part of making moral judgments in the Christian life, says Gustafson. It is sometimes to have the imagination provoked by a parable with a concreteness that form a discourse, uh, that the form of discourse has, and to exercise one's imagination in discerning what, a con, uh, what is concretely required in the moment. Christ is the Christian's premier model. In addition, the Christian can look to fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters of the faith from the universal church across space and time. Kennison writes, By steeping ourselves in the stories of Christians across the ages, By listening to their struggles, their failures, their God-enabled victories, we begin to have our imaginations opened to new possibilities hidden within our seemingly necessity-driven contexts. Christian history is important. Christian mentorship is important. A final suggestion for the development of the moral imagination is the reading or perhaps the watching of good stories, the thinking about, the thinking of good stories. The imagination is a component of man's mind. It is like a plot of dirt that grows whatever we fill it with, whether fruits and vegetables, flowers, thorns and thistles and weeds. Consequently, a story, even if fictional, even if fictional can... Uh, I've lost my place. 
A story, even if fictional, with true morals, can grow the imagination in a God-pleasing manner. Good stories demonstrate to people how true morals work out in real life as they traverse with characters on their journeys of highs and lows, failures and triumphs. Readers unwittingly learn to identify with characters and stories. They put themselves in their shoes and they grow with them through the course of their arcs. Imagination grants people the ability to see how a given moral could apply in a given circumstance. We see this with people in real life. We see this with people in stories. All people fill their minds with certain stories, certain narratives, whether they read them or watch them or hear them in the news. The question the Christian must ask is how a given story is shaping his moral imagination and whether it coheres with the world as God has made it. People respond to stories because it engages their total personality. It's for that reason that preachers include illustrations in their sermons. If a talented speaker can capture the imagination in the span of a five-minute story, how much more can a talented author do so over the course of a novel or a series? Good stories cultivate the moral imagination because they beautifully demonstrate an example of how to live. In his book, Live Not By Lies, Rod Dreher talks about the importance of Christians filling their moral imaginations with the good. In the seventh chapter, he presents the story of the family of Vaclav and Kamila Bind, who suffered in the totalitarian state of Czechoslovakia. She read to them fairy tales, myths, adventure stories, and even some horror classics. More than any other novel, though, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings was a cornerstone of her family's collective imagination. Why Tolkien, I ask? This is Dreher. Why Tolkien, I ask? Because we knew that Mordor was real. We felt that their story was our story too. Tolkien's dragons are more realistic than a lot of things we have in this world. They had faced evil and they had confronted evil and looked it in the eye in the totalitarian state under which they had lived. And so Tolkien gave them strength. It gave them courage. It showed them examples of how to stare down totalitarianism. Stories are powerful. Whether Tolkien's Middle Earth or C.S. Lewis's Narnia or more recently Andrew Peterson's Ariar. Yet, even for those who have not cultivated love for reading fiction, they still fill their imaginations with stories of some kind. In conclusion, although some people associate the imagination strictly or primarily with the arts, philosophical, Burke, and theological, all these others, and Burke, reflection demonstrates that it is a fundamental component of human nature. People imagine because they are created in the image of a God who imagines. However, people do not imagine as God intended. Because of sin, God created it good, but it is defective. The human imagination gives rise to a social imagination because man is social. Thus, the imagination is a powerful force for good morals and for bad morals. A moral imagination arises from an imagination that is formed by the gospel, shaped through the scriptures, nurtured within the church. A conscientious Christian may develop his moral imagination by disciplining himself in epistemic virtues by looking to practical examples from the scriptures in Christian history and by rehearsing stories that reflect the true, uh, the good, and the beautiful.
Mr. Webster. It, it seems that what you're arguing in part is that imagination is a starting place for what may be a false dichotomy between content and art or theology and, and aesthetics or, or, or whatever. What, what, are, what do you see as the dangers, whether practical dangers or theological dangers, of this dichotomy of, of throwing these two areas into separate boxes and not letting them come together. The danger is that we as the church, uh, a danger, there, there are more than one, a danger is that we as the church won't talk sufficiently about the imagination because we assume that it just regards aesthetics and the arts. Meanwhile, people are forming their imagination in some way by virtue of the fact that they're humans. And so there's this area of who we are as humans that's not being attended to. Uh, and so if the, the Christian gospel is about uh, forming uh, our total personalities, to use a, a four-lines-ism, and, and we're omitting that part of, of it, that, then we're missing a, 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 a part of who we are as humans. Or we're, we're missing out on, on, on that aspect of man's nature. And so it's, just, so it's not attended to. And when something isn't attended to, we're not perhaps thinking about it uh, just as individuals. If, if you're not reminded of something over and over and over and over again, you're not really thinking about it, so you're more likely to take it for granted. And where you take things for granted, you know, bad stuff happens. Um, you know, you, uh, you don't tend to maintenance at your house, and you let that go for a long time, and, and suddenly you've got mold and all kinds of issues. That, you know, you've got to attend to these things. There may be others. Uh, I saw this hand next. I'll go to Mr. Talbot next. So you're, you're sort of saying human imagination is in some way analogous to divine imagination. It's, um, it, 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 it comes from the fact. Why do we imagine? Because God imagines and we're made in his image. Okay, great. So it is in some way analogous. Can you say a bit more then about divine imagination um, as it relates to things like certainty? Because I'd like to know a bit more about, to, I'd like to think a little bit more about that, or maybe you could say a little bit more about what, what divine imagination actually is, and how it's analogous, and how it's different, because it seems anthropomorphic, right, in, in mm -hmm. some ways. So maybe you could say a bit more about that. I would say, uh, I would say that there are similar distinctions and comparisons between, say, the divine imagination and the human imagination, as we would say between all the other components of man, uh, his reason, his, uh, his emotion, you know, so on and so forth. So are there ways in which these things are similar to God? Yes, because we're made in his image. Are there ways in which they're different? Yes, because we're not God, you know. Um, so what are some examples of that? Uh, to your point, God knows what will happen. Um, there is certainty there because he knows the future. He's omniscient, so on and so forth. We don't necessarily uh, know the future with certainty. Sometimes we can have good ideas about what the future may hold. Um, I have a good idea that uh, tomorrow morning I'll get up and, uh, and I'll brush my teeth. You know, So I can imagine that and that's in the future. Um, however, I don't know that with certainty because something terrible could happen. Or something great could happen. I mean, the Lord could return, you know. Or something terrible could happen. I could be in an accident. So... Uh, we're hoping not, but uh, 
took a bad turn there. Um, so yeah, there, there, certainly there are distinctions uh, to be made. Uh, fundamentally, though, we as humans, we make plans all the time. You know, you wake up and you say, do I want to use the restroom first or do I want to grab a bite to eat first? You know, you have these thoughts swimming around in your, in your mind all the time, just practically. That's what you do. We plan. You know, right now you're planning. What am I going to do when there's break time? I'm going to make a beeline to get a, get, a, uh, get a moon pie. You know, so we're imagining all the time. Um, but our imagination is not, there's not certainty. What's that? Synonymous, um, I would say that planning is, a, is the exercise of imagination. I wouldn't say they're the same thing. I would say that planning is imagination and reason coming together. Is what I would say. And that's what, I think that's what these voices would say. That's what Frame would say. That's what Van Hooser would say. Mr. Talbot. Yeah, um, so you mentioned in your paper that the human is to imagine. I know that there's some bioethicists like uh, Robert Swayman and John Kilner that are really, really hesitant to um, define uh, uh, humanity or like personhood according to like the ability to do something or have a function. Even pushing back against you know historical ideas like in reason or relationship or whatnot, instead uh, grounding you know human worth in the imagination, in as much as that is an essential quality, right? Not the ability to do something. Um, so, so how does that? Could you kind of it does um, I would say and, and we're getting into partly what does it mean to bear the image of God um, what I see in Genesis 126 and 27 is that God makes man in his image according to his likeness and the things that we see immediately in that passage are things like um, well, God makes man, so what is man? Man is to use a f- total personality, thinking, feeling, acting. So there's that. There's also male and female, he made them in his image. So there's that. And then immediately, he offers the creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So um, there is a relationship between these things, I think. Um, whether it's uh, uh, essential or ac- whether these are essential or accidental properties is, is somewhat of a, a different question. And there's a big thing that happens in Genesis three that fundamentally makes uh, what's happening in Genesis one different from where we are today. And that big thing is called the fall. Um, so um, I think you could say one moment. I think you could say some people don't reason at all, or. Some people aren't able to do certain things that presumably you could do in Genesis 1, on the one hand. On the other hand, none of us reason in the way that we were intended. But that doesn't thereby mean that we don't bear God's image. So, uh, so to use Mr. Webster's phrase yesterday, have I appropriately dodged your question? <laughs> Philip had a hand up, although I, I don't know if we're out of time. Yeah, if you want to... May I sneak one in? So at the very end of your presentation, you start to give some principles for how we might engage the moral imagination. And I wondered if you could explore for just a moment why it would be particularly important, especially for ministers, but just in general as Christians, to explore the nature of evil and sin through this kind of imaginary world. And what would be the appropriate way to do that, where you're actually exploring what is going on and not celebrating? Maybe you could just give some helpful 
suggestions on how to do this? So the first part of it is why we should explore evil. And the second part of it is how do you do it without going in the wrong direction. Well, the reason why we should explore evil is because we live in an evil world. And uh, if we're living in an evil world and we're thinking about how we're reacting within our evil world, then we need to spend time uh, looking to good examples of how to deal with that. Um, the relationship of a mentor and a mentee is fundamentally an imaginative relationship because the mentee looks at the way the mentor makes decisions and lives in light of his or her world and uh, says, oh, that's how you work through that. And we get that from mentors. We get that from you know mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers of the past. We get that from characters and stories. Um, the way that you do it without succumbing to it is uh, very carefully. I mean, it's, it's atop the formation of, of epistemic uh, mental virtues, you know. Uh, it requires Christian maturity. And I think that it's better to err on the side of caution than to err on the side of, of, of liberty. Uh, there's a way to explore thing without exploring that thing. So my grandfather will make the observation that you could watch an old film, say a Cary Grant film or a Hitchcock film, and, uh, and there would be two people who, who hold hands and exit the room, and that was all that you saw, but you, you knew what was happening. But that's not the way that, that TV is today, and so a lot of us don't watch that mess. Uh, and, and I don't suppose any of us should watch that mess, by the way. But I'm just saying, there's a way to explore it without exploring it. And uh, if you as an individual, I think, feel the temptation to, uh, you're, you're, you're feeling the wrong kind of temptation, then stop immediately. Stop immediately. See God's face. That type of thing. So, carefully. Carefully. The more our world explodes into fractals of subcultures uh, where we speak into silos, the more we need a centralized focus on the gospel and the promise of the gospel for a world restored and renewed. And I think that's a wonderful message for each of us. Uh, let me just remind you, if you have not yet had an opportunity to sign in, please do so. We do have uh, old copies of Digest as well as the copies of Digest uh, that we're working through today, so uh, see some of us if you'd like to get uh, your hands on some of those. We also have some uh, old copies of Integrity if you'd like, if you need to fill up your library there as it relates to that. So we're going to take a break now, and uh, please avail yourself of some of the refreshments, some of the moon pies that Mr. Bracey uh, referenced a little earlier. Uh, perhaps you brought a toothbrush to brush your teeth thereafter, so we'll see. Uh, but uh, we will resume at 10.15 for Ben Campbell's presentation. So thank you, uh, and hope you have a great morning.